name is Neil Middleton and every month we create informative content for you as we talk to important, influential and inspirational people from the world of bats as well as other areas of interest. To find out more about Batability, go to batability.co.uk. Now for the interview, let's do it. Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody. And here we go again for another Talking Bat interview. And oh wow, John Ross. If anybody is in this part of the world and they don't know who John Ross is, you need to get on Google straight away. Uh, this guy has been, goodness, I think I could probably say, right, he is somebody that has certainly been uh, well on my radar. And uh, I think I would always want to use the word hero of mine, okay, since the late 1990s, when a very important uh, book uh, was produced, which we will talk about later in today's interview. So more about that coming up. But first of all, John, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. That was quite an amazing introduction. Um, well, I must, that's you I must write that down about. and show the wife. <laughs> that, that's you I'm talking about, my man. And uh, and yeah, I, I remember the very first time I was aware of you, and that was uh, when uh, the book that I've got over in the back here came out, The Bats of Britain and Ireland. I think that came out late 1990s, 1999, I think was the publication date. It Around was a very, very long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then I remember the first time I ever saw you, I was at a National Bat Conference and that book had just been published and you did a side event, like a workshop, I suppose we'd have called it back then, a workshop about the book at that conference. And I was very, very lucky to be one of about 50 people, if I remember correctly, sitting in that room with you talking about that first book. And I, I just sat there thinking, first of all, this guy knows so much more uh, through the production of that book than the rest of us did, which may not necessarily have been true based on who else was in the audience, but that's what I felt like. And I also thought, thank goodness, thank goodness that someone has actually had the courage to try and produce something as she did. Um, so that's my earliest memory of you. Do you remember being in the room doing that workshop? You won't remember me being there, but do you remember <laughs> doing that workshop? Um, I did a few workshops around then, actually. I, I did a, I did quite a few with Colin Cato, um, yes. because actually Colin really started all that. Colin produced the first book on okay. uh, identification of bats by the sounds that I remember, okay. um, and that was produced by the BCT. So yeah, I did a few of those with Colin. But yeah, I do remember, I do remember the first one I did at BCT and it was using the old overhead projector. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, acetates and stuff, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was also my first sort of introduction to workshops. I'd never really run any of those before. Yeah. So it was pretty scary. Yeah, no, that was well, I still remember that. And that must have been, well, that's that's 22 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, and I and I and I was fortunate enough to know Colin. Uh you know, Colin was a, a lovely guy and I'd been on quite a few of his workshops back then as well. 
Um, so yeah, yeah. But anyway, let's very quickly, I just want to tell you a little bit about uh, John before we get uh, too deep into today's interview. He's the director of Ridgeway Ecology. Ridgeway Ecology is a specialist back consultancy and John's also worked for the Bat Conservation Trust uh, coordinating what's called the iBats project, which uh, previous to that description was the bats and roadside mammals in its earliest days. We're going to talk about that coming up as well. Hugely respected within the world of bats, an honours degree zoology at the University of Aberdeen. He then went on to do his PhD at Queen's University Belfast. And as well as being a consultant, which obviously this is a lot of what Ridgeway Ecology would be involved with, um, definitely an academic researcher, and as we've already mentioned, an author. And does that kind of sum you up quite well, John? Um, Monday to Friday? Probably Saturdays and Sundays. Is that kind of? Yeah. I think. I think. I guess it does. Really. Um, I mean, generally, most of the time, I'm I'm a consultant at the moment, but I do try to do a bit of research from time to time, and I can squeeze it in. Um, and obviously, the odd odd book here and there, and I can squeeze that in. Yeah. Um, but yes, that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you? No, if you go back to being a youngster. Um, when was your, well, when were you conscious of your first, I suppose, slightly deeper interest in natural history, maybe compared to people you were at school with? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, can you think yeah, about that? that? Um, for me, I, I had very little interest in, in nature, to be honest, when I was very young, um, but I did love being out in the, in the countryside. I mean, I, I grew up in a very small village, in a valley and we, we'd spend lots of time climbing trees and walking through fields and that sort of thing. Um, great times really, but I didn't have a huge interest in natural history at all. Um, and to be honest, I didn't really, I, I did my first degree in chemistry, believe it or not. Okay. I didn't have a clue that I was interested in, in nature. I thought, oh, chemistry, that sounds interesting. I'm quite good at it. And I went to the University of East Anglia to do a degree in chemistry. And learned very quickly it wasn't for me. <laughs> it was awful. Yeah. Um, so I thought I'd better do something, something a bit different. You know, do a huge, um, yeah, do something very, very different to that. And I thought, well, what else am I interested in? I enjoy being outdoors, and I actually love seeing animals and plants. So I decided to do tropical environmental science at the University of Aberdeen. Um, so that sounds quite interesting. Sounds like you'll be out in the rainforest a lot. Um, sounds brilliant. Was, was, it the, was it the tropical bit that sounded more? <laughs> it was really. <laughs> um, and I, I went to Aberdeen and actually the tropical environment science, I realised it wasn't quite for me because a lot of it was soils. And uh, I'm not that interested in soils. So after, after a year or two, I changed to just a zoology degree. And it was really then that I started to get really, really interested in in natural history. Okay. Um, God, how old? I must have been, what, 20, 22? So quite late, really. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Aberdeen University, of course, uh, Paul Racy, yeah? Was he, was, he in, was he your professor in the department that you were in? Or uh, who, who was, uh, can you remember back then, who was, who was looking after you? Well, there's, lot, there's lots of people looking after you until yeah. the last year when you have to do a, um, a project. 
you have to do an honours project. Um, and I, I'd known Paul Racy just through his lectures. Um, I, I did like Paul. He always he always wore a white lab coat into lectures. Um, he's the only guy that wore a lab coat. Um, so you, you could never really remember him. Uh, sorry, you could never forget him. Um, and he also made you write everything down. So he'd read it all out. So much really interesting information. And, and, it, and you were writing frantically throughout the whole lecture. Um, but it wasn't really till the, the fourth year when we had to do this honours project. And um, I remember I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I thought bat sounds quite interesting, but there was a, what they used to do was put a list up on the wall of possible projects you could do and the supervisors. And I remember the first one I looked at was um, Orkney Vols with um, Dr. Xavier Lambin. Okay. And I thought, well, I'll have a look and see what that's about. And I went up to see him and he showed me this big concrete enclosure. And he said, well, you'll be spending all summer uh, looking at little voles with tags on running around. Uh, and that's what you'll be doing week after week. And I just thought, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> thought, well, next one on the list was Paul. I thought, oh, I'll go and see what Paul's is about. And he was so enthusiastic. And he, he was saying, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're going to go under bridges with uh, ultrasonic bat detectors and you're going to look for mating bats. Um, really exciting stuff. You're going to go to various rivers in Aberdeenshire. And I just thought, well, that sounds for me. That sounds interesting. And I, and I yeah, just got hooked from then, really. And Paul was he, was, he was so enthusiastic, actually. He was one of the few supervisors every day when you went out and did field work. He'd ask you to come in during his lunch break and ask you, um, about what you'd found the night before. And when you think he had so many honours students, so many MSc students, PhD students, he, he found time for all his um, students. He was just really, really interested in, in, in you and what you'd found. Um, so that's really where I got to know Paul Racy. Wow, wow. Did you, did, did, you, did you ever tell him he was your second choice? <laughs> <laughs> It's all right, John. Your secret's safe with us. <laughs> oh, excellent stuff. Like, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about about your academic work. Um, I, I know you've got uh, you've been the lead author or a co-author on many uh, pieces of academic work, and this is just a very small selection uh, here, just to give an overview of the kind of things that you've been involved with, albeit this selection here is focusing uh, mainly, I think, on uh, work you've done uh, connected with the British Isles. So we've got distress calls in bats, we've got uh, distress, distress calls in soprano pipistrelle, we've got stuff you've done on enthusiast pipistrelle. Uh, of course, you spent a bit of time in Northern Ireland where you did your PhD. So this, uh, this paper here, Habitat Associations of Bats in Northern Ireland, Implications for Conservation. These are just examples. Do you want to pick out some highlights of, uh, of the stuff that you've done, which may not necessarily relate to what I've got here? What, what do you feel are your highlights and your most important pieces of work? Well, I guess the, the first one really was the first paper I ever, I ever wrote, which was I, I finished my degree in Zoology Aberdeen. Um, and I didn't really know what to do. And Paul said, well, why don't you, why don't you do a bit of research? We'll get some money to um, investigate something. Um, and he came up with this idea. He was, he was interested um, in, together with, um, I think it was Brock Fenton. Um, they, they, they'd been curious about, they'd gone to caves 
and they'd noticed that when they had bats in um, in bags or held in um, a hand, other bats would come in and swarm them. And he was interested in why why this would happen. And there'd also been reports of um, you know sometimes lots and lots of bats caught up in uh, water tanks and attics. I think that you, you showed a picture just there, which yeah. um, was taken by John Haddow actually in Scotland. Um, and what you'd find would be, um, I mean, that, that was a really extreme example, but you'd find dead bats um, and bones and then live bats on top. Um, and, and we were wondering really what was going on there. Um, I mean, I found quite a few since going in attics, like an old bucket in a corner full of dead long-eared bats. And you think, how on earth could that have happened? Yeah. Um, and Paul, Paul thought perhaps it was something to do with um, distress calls. Like the bats are emitting a call and attracting other bats. So the first bit of research I did was funded by the university's um, fund for animal welfare, I think it was, and it was a six-month project. And basically, what we were doing was putting probably wouldn't would be frowned on now, but we were catching bats and putting them in a tiny little cage um, and looking at the response of other bats um, outside maternity use to see what would happen. Um, and then following that, we recorded the sounds they were making and then played those back to see what sort of response we were getting just from the sounds. So you're playing back the sounds without the bat actually being there. Um, and what, what we found was that there was a really strong response. I mean, you, you have an empty cage and you have the old, old bat flying around. Um, when you put five bats in the cage, the, the I think the it's like a 25-fold increase in bat activity above the cage. Um, there's a huge response to the other bats. Um, and the same with the, when you just play the bat, the uh, calls through the loudspeaker, we were getting something like an eightfold increase. Um, so you need the bats there to get a sustained response, but the, the calls they were emitting um, were obviously um, having an effect on the other bats. And uh, I think we, we concluded that um, it was like a, a mobbing response. So if a bat's caught by a predator, for example, the other bats will come in, um, perhaps possibly to try to free it or to gain information about what's going on. So it can use that information for sort of when perhaps in the future when they're caught, for example. Um, I think there are some other functions we thought of. Um, and yes, and we managed to publish a paper in um, what was it called, Animal Behaviour which I was really pleased about. So that, that's the one that really sticks in my mind because it was the first paper I got published. I thought, wow, I could do this. Um, so and that yeah. must be, that must be a, you know, look at my, my, my background is, as I think, you know, I, I didn't go through the university uh, process, okay? I, I went through, my university life was 24 years working for an insurance company, okay? But, uh, but, a lot of people go through university and they never get anything published, sometimes because they choose not to, or sometimes they're just not at a level. That, that must be, you know, as you've described there, you know, really, really special. You know, it must give you a, a sense of uh, value, a sense that you're, you're contributing something, yeah? Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. <clears throat> Exactly, it's going to be there forever, isn't it? It's it's in the literature, it's there forever. Um, but as I said before, I couldn't have done it without Paul Racy sort of pushing it and, and explaining that actually, you know, you, you can do this. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it was that that the publication, that first paper, really made me realise that 
you know, I love doing research. It's great. I mean, yeah. you get to go out and do all this field work, come up with these hypotheses, test them, and then you can publish something. Yeah. Um, you know. Have you, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered how different your life journey up until this point would have been had you chosen, for example, to stick with the chemistry or had you chosen the Orkney Vol project for argument's <laughs> sake? Because it's because it's these very small decisions that people sometimes make with their lives that when they look back on it are, are massive, but they wouldn't have been considered as being massive in the moment. Have you ever reflected on that? I have, yeah. I mean, I haven't got a clue where I don't. I mean, maybe, maybe I'll be, I'll be incredibly, an incredibly rich chemist at the moment, yeah. Um, yeah. but maybe not very happy. Um, I just, I just remember doing, doing chemistry and you know being in this lab, sort of mixing things and getting clear liquids and just wondering what I was doing there. Um, I mean, I mean, bats is a passion, really. You're right. I mean, it's very, very, very lucky to have sort of drifted into it in a way. I, mean, I didn't push myself to do it. It just sort of came along. So, yeah, I, I, I do wonder sometimes what I'd have ended up doing. I haven't got a clue, really. I mean, quite a few of the people I went to university with ended up doing something completely different uh, to, to their degree. So I could have just been like that, really. Yeah, yeah. And back then, uh, and I'm fortunate enough, uh, I think I started getting interested in bats the mid-1990s from memory, right? And back then, it was, I mean, it was a very, I mean, maybe not, in an, not, not maybe from the academic world's perspective, but generally speaking, it was quite an unusual thing to be interested in. I seem to remember when I first joined Bat Conservation Trust, I think it only, it had less than 500 members from memory, yeah. And, and I came from a world of uh, birding, okay, ornithology. And in amongst all my uh, birding pals, they just thought I was very, very odd to be interested in bats. I mean, the world back then was, it was quite different. And that is only, what, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, did you feel a little bit unusual uh, when talking to family, friends, other people back then? I did really. There was there was hardly anyone doing that sort of research at the time. Um, I mean, obviously there was Paul Racy, who, who I suppose started the research in the UK. Did he? There was, there's also John Speakman. Yeah. Um, and Bob Stebbings. Say, you know, people like Paul, yeah, John Speakman, uh, Bob Stebbings. You know, absolutely. these kind of people. Uh, apologies if I've missed anybody out, but but these are kind of the characters I remember. Uh, yeah back then yeah, yeah yeah tony hudson and uh yes. and yeah. gareth jones but i think yeah. he, I mean, he was after paul wasn't he yeah um so there was a few of them and in some ways it was um i shouldn't really say it was sort of in an amateurish way yeah. um, but it, i mean it was just a new thing before my time but a new thing that was starting hard then and was doing it yeah um you know i remember actually this, this is after the research but i remember when i started doing consultancy in west midlands and in the West Midlands region, there was only about, this is the whole region, not just the, the sort of county. There was only about eight or 10 of us doing it. Yeah. And you look now and there's hundreds of people have an interest in bats. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's really uh, increased dramatically, hasn't it? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, same, same as you. I mean, I, I launched Echoes Ecology in 2006. Okay. Uh, I'm no longer uh, involved in, in Echoes, but, but in 2006 for Scotland, I think there was only, well, there was less than five, okay, uh, businesses like Echoes Ecology in Scotland in 2006. In other words, bat consultancy type businesses. Yeah. Uh, and I could, I'm not going to name them, but, you know, and that was for the whole of Scotland. <laughs> If you're enjoying listening to our podcasts, perhaps you would also be interested in joining Batability Club. To find out more about Club, which includes hundreds of hours of accessible training resources available to you in your own time and at your pace, go to batability.co.uk. Thank you. And of course, back then, when, when you're doing your research and stuff, and this is going to be quite hard for some younger people to get their head around. But back then, we didn't have Facebook, social media groups, uh, access to the internet, um, mobile phones, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's it's darn hard to do this stuff today with you all this technology. You're very old. Yeah, yeah. But, but back then... Um, you know, everything was was so much harder, uh, I would yeah. imagine. And the technology wasn't the same. You were probably using, what were you, would have you been using time expansion back detectors for your research or heterodyne? Can you remember? It was, um, what were we using then? We were using, um, it was all, it was all heterodyne. And um, but the playback experiment was, I had a, uh, I think it was an S, I think it was an S25 detector, which was, uh, we just used it as, as a microphone, um, connected to an old reel-to-reel Raquel tape recorder, okay. which would record at high speed. Um, so you could record ultrasound, and then I'd have to play it back. And so I, out in the field, I'd have to take a, the back detector, the, this huge Raquel tape recorder, and a generator um, to record the back sounds. I mean, that, that's pretty much what we were using then. There was also something else I think called a PUSP, which I remember um, the late Kate Barlow introduced me to. And I think that, did that record in frequency division? I can't remember. I think it did, um, but there wasn't a lot of, a lot of uh, high spec bat detectors then, were there? No, it was, and, mm. and if you wanted a training course, you had to physically go to probably like one of Colin's workshops for argument's sake, you know, yeah. Colin Cato BCT workshop. Uh, and it really, it was mainly volunteers, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and it, but even then, I remember every county had a back group. Yeah. That, that amazed me. I mean, every county I moved to, there'd be a back group you could join. Yeah. Um, even when I went to Northern Ireland, there was no one else there researching bats. I think, pretty sure, I think I was the first. Yeah. They had a back group and the back group had been going for years. Um, I really like that actually. Wherever you moved, you, you instantly had these these friends in this little community that you could join. Yeah, um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was good. And still is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so what what made you? So you, you so you went to the frozen northeast of Scotland, which I know very well because I'm an Aberdonian. Okay, so I know the Granite City. That's where I was born. Uh, 
and uh, it can be a bit, it's certainly not tropical uh, with reference to what <laughs> the previous point. And you decided uh, to then go to, to Belfast. Uh, how, how did you end up in Belfast uh, doing what you were doing there? Uh, yeah, it was very lucky actually, because um, uh, Professor Ian Montgomery uh, at Queen's University Belfast had been given some funding by the Environment and Heritage Service to do um, some bat work. They, they, they basically knew nothing about bats in Northern Ireland. Yeah. And they wanted someone to come over and just get any information really um, and try, try and look at the whole of, um, of Northern Ireland and just try and come up with a picture, look at community composition, that sort of thing, what species they had. Um, and Ian didn't really know who else to ask apart from Paul. And I'll never forget that um, I was, I think I was working in the computer room a few doors up from Paul um, when he burst in and said, you've got to come and talk to this guy. Um, he's in Northern Ireland, uh, Queen's University of Belfast, they're looking for someone to do a PhD on bats. Um, and I think you could do it. So what? Um, and, he, and he dragged me into the room and pretty much Ian just said, yeah, well, we'd like to offer, the, I'd never spoke to him before. He said, well, we'd like to offer you this PhD. Um, you know, you'd be doing this, that and the other. You obviously have to live over here, but I'd like you to come over for um, an interview. And um, not, not actually didn't say it was an interview. He said, I want you to come over just to see whether you like the place, to see whether you'd like to do it. I mean, how, how lucky is that? I mean, I didn't, it wasn't, I didn't have an interview or anything. And um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm old enough to now. Yeah. Um, when I, I had to fly over, um, I can't remember, it was a week, at the weekend, I think. And, uh, but the night before was one of my friend's birthday parties. And uh, oh, okay. it was like really, really late, really okay. late. Yeah. And um, I actually managed to sleep for the alarm and I missed the flight. It was awful. And I had to phone in the morning and say, I'm really sorry, I, I, I've missed this flight. I can't remember what reason I gave. And I managed to get another one, which was about three hours later. Um, and I turned up and then it was fine. And in the evening, we all went out, the whole of the, the, uh, the group went out along with Ian. And um, I had a couple of Guinnesses and I, I told him, I said, actually, I was out last night um, and you know, I probably had a few too many and I missed the plane. And he said, to be honest, I'm glad you told me that because I think you're going to fit in really well here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that was it. Uh, so it worked out quite well, really. As an aside, anybody listening to this uh, that's uh, going through a similar process to what John was doing 30 odd years ago, whatever it was, this is not how to do it. Okay. No, <laughs> this is not how to do it. Way. No, I was very lucky. <laughs> uh, did you ever tell Paul that you'd missed the flight? Oh, oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's now he'll know now, but I, you know, I'm 50 now. Yeah. I don't care. You don't care. Okay. But say, uh, I cannot. Oh, man. Goodness, that would have been, uh, we've, we've all been there, we've all done stuff like that. But but how, again, it just shows you how, how little things, you know, yeah. just turn into, you know, unknown at the time, just become so significant. And, um, and you being in Northern Ireland, doing the work that you did and i may be miscalling this but this is my perception but please correct me if i obviously do correct me if i'm wrong but but that was really that then really became the the foundation to the work that produced the first book is, is that correct uh, in, indirectly 
couldn't that, say that. That is correct, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, when, when I went over there, I, I didn't, it, it's really where I, I began learning about time expansion, I think, um, because I was doing it every day. And there wasn't really any resources out there apart from Colin's book. Um, you know, I probably have it somewhere. Yeah. I mean, Colin, Colin's book was brilliant. Um, you know, and there was also there was a tape, wasn't there? By was it Phil Richardson? I think produced the tape. Yeah, there was a tape um, of Hitchdine back recordings, and I think, and it was it not? I think David King was involved as well. Uh, from all oh, or maybe you're talking about a different yeah. one. But I remember a tape that. David King at, at the, the, the stag bat detectors yeah. at the time that then became uh, bat box limited. I remember there was a tape going about then as well. Uh, there was, and, and, and I mean, Colin's book had had sonograms in it, but they were drawn, so they were like line diagrams, yeah. and they're quite simple. Um, and I thought, well, let's just let's just produce something for Ireland because it'd be very very useful for all the the researchers and the volunteers in, in Ireland to have something like that. Um, and it would be easy for me to do one because I mean, when I was in Northern Ireland, I think they only had uh, six bat species when I first arrived. Well, that's easy. Uh, and then I could add in the lesser horseshoe bat, which was in the south of Ireland. Um, so very simple to do. Um, so I just put, put together this little um, little booklet, really, uh, of sonograms and, and you know how to, how to identify bats from the different sonograms. And in, in some ways it was... It, it was for other people, but it was really for me. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I have such a bad memory that I have to write things down. And it's really why I write these books, because I, I, if I don't write it down, I won't remember. So yeah. the book was really to help me with my PhD. So I could keep referring to it. You know, that's the maximum frequency I've recorded of whiskered bats, for example, etc. Um, but, you know, and, and it was sort of secondary, really, that this could be used to help other people too. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really how the first sort of, I mean, a booklet, not book, I suppose, um, came about. Um, the 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 bats of what well, I can't remember what it's called. The bats of Britain and Ireland, is it yeah, called? Yeah, the bats of Britain and Ireland. And of course, yeah, this, I, yeah. I remember taking the Irish one to a conference and uh, showing it to um, oh, what's his name? So I can't remember offhand. It'll come to me. Is this the guy from Alana Ecology, Andrew McLeish? No, it wasn't. It was. Um, uh, so I can't remember. He was a professor at the time. He's, he's passed away. He wrote loads of mammal books. Okay. Um, uh, and he suggested I. He said, "Oh, you should definitely get this published. Something's going to be really useful. You know, why don't you approach um, the Mammal Society? Um, because they they do lots of little booklets like that." And I approached them, and they said that it's not their sort of thing. But I remember talking to um, uh, Alana Ecology. Um, Andrew McLeish. Andrew McLeish. Yeah. 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 He said, "Oh, we could do that. We could publish that." Um, but it would be much better if you made it a British bat, not just Irish. Yeah. So I, I had to start gathering the information for the for the British species, which was a, a bit tricky living in Ireland at the time. But I, I, I had some recordings from um, from England. So I basically just slowly gathered all this information together um, and thought it would probably need some sort of introduction. So I, I did a chapter on bats and sounds, I think, and... Uh, um, the physics of sound, because it's ages ago now, I can't remember all this. Um. <laughs> do, you want me to, do you want me to remind you what we've got here? Um, so we've got uh, you did properties of sound, bats and sound. Uh, you did a short chapter on bat detectors. 
and the bulk of it was species identification. And uh, you did a little bit on acquisition and analysis. And there was various appendices uh, in the glossary and stuff. And not, not joking, uh, everybody, but, you know, this stuff here, when this came out, there, there, there'd never been anything produced like this for UK, well, sorry, for British Isles species at this point. And this became, for quite a number of years, probably the, especially for those of us doing acoustic air-related work, be it as a hobby, research, or professionally, this, this was like, this was massive. You know, this was, this was absolutely massive because at last we had something and somebody had been brave enough to uh, try and put it together. When there wasn't really, uh, other than Colin's uh, stuff that he'd done for BCT, there wasn't really a template. There wasn't really anything that you could compare it with. I think Michel Baratot and uh, Tupiner, they had done their European bat CD at that point, but that that had been done very, very differently, I think. Yeah. Uh, did, did, you, did you appreciate the time? And I've said a few things there, which maybe wasn't your perspective, but did you appreciate at the time that when that hit the bat world, in the British Isles especially, that it was going to generate such a huge amount of interest? Um, did, did that scare you? Did that excite you? I mean, what, what was going on in your mind when, when you physically get this from Andrew McLeish at Alana Ecology, which was later bought over by NHBS, by the way. But when you, when you physically get this for the first time from Alana before anybody else has seen it, what's going through your mind at that point? It's funny, isn't it? He's looking at it now, you flicking through it. It looks rubbish. <laughs> but I remember. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I remember at the time being so excited to hold this in, in you know in my hand. Um, yeah, I mean, I just felt it was a, a, a big achievement, really. Um, I mean, I, I didn't really have the same sort of perspective that you've, you, you, you've just given. Um, okay. You know, I mean, it, it was just a, a useful resource people could use. Um, it's great to hear that you, you thought that. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was wow. exciting. Yeah. Well, I, I, I just seem to remember from back then and, uh, you know, I, I think, 95% of uh, th those of us that were into this stuff were just, oh, wow, this is amazing. And again, as you get with anything like this that anybody ever does, you then have that very, very small percentage of people that say, yeah, but it doesn't have this, or he didn't say that. And you just want to turn around to those people and say, well, you know, with all due respect, mate, you know, why didn't you write a book then? Because it's not, it's not easy. Who are these people? I need to write I can remember, I don't, because it was so long ago and I didn't know all of the characters back then, because I was quite recent into the, the bat community myself back then. Uh, I, you know, I wish I knew uh, there was one person in particular that's probably of no significance, but I just wish I knew who he was so I could tell you their name. But I remember thinking to myself, 
you know, it just sounded like somebody that uh, was just coming from the wrong, coming from the wrong, you know, direction on it. Uh-huh. And uh, and of course, many years later, I've had to go through something similar myself. Okay, but uh, you just put everything into perspective, don't you? Mm-hmm. I, I just think that that was massive. And well, no, it's funny. I mean, I usually just remember all the things that are wrong with the books rather than yeah. the good stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the one I remember about that book um, was the serotonin was awful. It was it was totally wrong. Um, I, I think we I think I had the um, the frequency containing maximum energy at about thirty two. Okay. Um, but uh, but it's all the information I had at the time. So, you know, you just had to put in. I mean, it's things like that, actually. It's the errors in the book that sort of drive me to do the next one, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it's so... We're going to talk more about books later on, but it's... I think unless someone has gone through the process that I know you've gone through uh, a few times now, it's it's darn hard. It is darn hard because... uh, someone picks up something like one of these books and flicks through it or reads it cover to cover over a couple of days and it's so easy to pick up on something that might be a little bit better for argument's sake but when you've been sitting there for years trying to pull all of this information together and you become so emotionally attached to it and you become so close to it um and you've got all these external influences like copy editors and stuff like this, trying to piece it all together. It, it's not easy. It, it isn't easy. Um, I mean, I, I take it you you can relate to some of what I'm saying there, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're right. It is hard work. I mean, I, I it's funny. I've, I've finished those books now, but you, I still don't forget, you know, how many hours you put into it how much stress goes in goes into it um but it's always worth it i mean you know your book's fantastic i think i've got them all behind me actually well goodness <laughs> wow thank you <laughs> thank you very much yeah. well i think that social calls book uh you know especially when it came to the pip stuff uh i think we quoted quite a few of your papers and that so uh that, 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 you know, so thank you um I think I think they're all there, and, and you know I don't get them free either. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh I paid for all of those too, John. <laughs> That's probably really rare that first one, now, isn't it? This one, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it's got quite a few scribbles in it and stuff like it? that. But that's uh, not going anywhere. Uh, I'm, I'm keeping that forever. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, let's 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 move on a bit. Uh, let me get the screen back up and uh, get get back on track and see what we've got coming up here. Let, let's very briefly about Methusias Papastel because you're over there. You've gone to Northern Ireland. You're doing this stuff to do with the different bat species, etc. I can't remember what came first. Uh, did they know they had Methusias Pipistrel in Northern Ireland before you arrived? Or was it as a result of you being there that it became more apparent that there was an established population in that part of the British Isles? I can't really fathom how that worked. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? being there, really. Okay. Um, I, I was over there. Part part of the PhD was um, uh, looking at habitat associations of bats throughout the whole of Northern Ireland, and, and to do that, I was looking at 
random one kilometer squares and I go and do spot counts in, in different habitats in these squares. Um, and I remember being in a place called Moneymore, which is, um, oh, it's in, it's in Derry somewhere. And uh, recording this bat flying along a, a hedgerow. And she thought, oh, that's, that's weird. It seems very low. It was the, it was a pipistrelle, but it was the peak frequency was about 39 um, kilohertz. And I made a couple of recordings of this and thought, this, this must be an Athesis pipistrelle. I don't see what else it could be. Uh, and I wrote this little note for the Irish Naturalist Journal, which I was really annoyed it got rejected. So I, I said, oh, I think I said possible first record of Nathesis pipistrelle in Ireland um, based on measures, measured parameters of its echolocation call. Um, I was really pleased with it, but they rejected it and they, they wouldn't accept that, that they could add a new mammal to the mammal to the, the Irish list based on echolocation calls. So I was a bit miffed. And I think it was the following year I was doing another random 1k squared and it was a... Um, it was at this place actually you've shown there's a picture here of this yes. uh, converted barn yeah um uh um and i remember just had the bat detector on and i just recorded this social call which had that classic nathesis trill you know that yeah yeah and and just instantly knew because i'd heard the recordings that it was a nathesis pipistrelle it's funny just straight away but that's nathesis pipistrelle and just wandered round and round and started hearing them all over the place. And then these low frequency application calls. Um, went, came back the next evening with a hand net. Um, and I think I netted six bats. Um, I think it's something like two adult females and three juveniles, something like that. Um, absolutely amazing. So excited. Um, and I, I think I wrote the whole paper up together with um, James O'Neill, who was with me at the time. Um, we wrote it up in, in a few days, I think, and sent it for publication. But that, that was, I mean, the, the, the record in uh, Moneymore was the first record, really, that I discovered in, in Northern Ireland. And then this was the first maternity roost um, in Ireland. Um, and the, the first sort of big roost in the whole of the British Isles. There was, there was a record, I think it was the year before, in um, Skegness, I think. Uh, and that was, I think that was two juveniles and one adult female flew from under a tile, I think. Okay. Um, but this was big. I mean, there was, there was about 250 bats in there. Wow. Um, so yeah, that, that got me really hit. I'll just point out this, this photograph you, I gave you, I, I gave you the wrong photograph really. This, as you can see, has no roof. Yes. Uh -huh. um, and this is awful that this, this building, the bats were roosting um, we think inside the actual roof itself, okay. um, but this building burnt down about six, seven years after um, after we discovered this this roost. Um, and fortunately, the bats have moved to an adjacent building. So, but this is the original roost here. Um, okay. So I gave you the wrong picture. Okay. Um, but this this got me really interested in the thesis pipistrelle, as you can imagine. So what, why have we, why is there such this, why are there, oh, I should say, and I started going, I started finding them everywhere then in Northern Ireland, particularly around Loch Ney, which is the huge lake in the middle of yeah. Northern yeah. Ireland. Everywhere I went around there, you know, I'd, I'd find um, records, I'd find the thesis pipistrelles and some maternity colonies. 
Um, and I was fortunate enough to know Mark Smith of the Northern Ireland Back Group at the time. Okay. And he went off on his own and he found far more than me. He was, he was finding records of roosts all the time. Um, and this got me really curious about what, why are there so many records of Methuselah Pippistrel in Northern Ireland and what's, what's the story in the whole of the British Isles? Because we, we didn't really know. All we'd had was a paper published by John Speakman um god when was that 1991 maybe and he'd looked at the 21 odd records of grounded bats that they'd had all at the time half of them being on offshore oil platforms um and he, he concluded that probably the bats were migrating across the north sea um i don't think yeah he concluded probably they weren't vagrants i think I think he concluded they were they were migrating in, okay. um, but this was based on very low numbers, um, and that really. Tony, we were talking earlier about uh, research. Now you've got the internet, mobile phones, you've got Facebook. Um, back then, I had none of that, um, and, and so my my method of gathering data was to write a letter to every single back group yeah. in the UK <laughs> um, and Ireland. And, and asked them if they'd had any records of Methuselah's pipistrels. Um, and every single back group except one um, replied. So I got data from every single back group. I think half of them had no records, but loads of them did that hadn't been published anywhere. Um, and on the strength of that, I think I published my first or second Methuselah's paper. The first one was on the one, the first record of bats in Ireland. Um, and that, that, Pretty, showed pretty strongly that they were definitely migrating in, um, but also that we were getting these populations that were resident. So we were getting these resident populations and these sedentary populations. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, you can see a, this is a more up-to-date graph of, of that seasonal distribution. Yes. Uh -huh. You can see we're getting these peaks in spring and in autumn when the bats are, are migrating in. Yes. Um, but you're also getting records all year round. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take a drink of this tea. Uh, go for it, go for it, yeah. And uh, if anybody wants to find out more specifically about the information that, that uh, John and lots of uh, people that have consulted with John uh, have provided, uh, there's a website here called enthusiast.org.uk. It's a fascinating insight into uh, the species and, and, you know, a really interesting species and of course there's a big debate now many years later uh, has this species uh, is it more abundant now in the British Isles than what it maybe was 30 40 50 years ago or have they possibly always been here but because of the technology uh, we had 20 30 years ago we weren't as conscious uh, that they were around us and uh, so there's a huge debate on that, I suppose. John, what's your gut instinct on that? Do you think, do you think these Nethusias pips, they've probably always been around us, but in the old days when we had a heterodyne bat detector, most of us would have been tuned at 45 or 50 or 55, and we wouldn't have necessarily been aware that there was a, a 39 or a 40 kilohertz bat flying around us. Uh, do you think there's a bit of that involved, or do you think... It is a sudden change in behaviour for the species that just happens to coincide with more bat workers and improved technology. Any thoughts? 
Well, I think there's a, a bit of both, really. I mean, certainly, um, you know, people listening to pipistrels at 40 kilohertz would have just thought they were common pipistrels. I mean, it happened with the soprano and common, didn't it, for, yeah. for years that there were these two uh, sort of phonic groups. Um, so I can see people would easily miss the um, miss the thesis pipistrels. Yeah. Um, so if you, I've done this, I've plotted the, uh, the, the, the increase in um, range of the species from, I think, yeah. 19, 1991. Um, well, actually, includes the first record in 19. I might have this. I might have a picture of that here. Hold on a second. See if I can quickly find it. There should be lots of data that I've collected over the years and been and sent through the website. Um, and I've just the, is this the picture you're talking about? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 I have a more up to date one actually, but yes, this one goes up to 2015. So you can see this is the distribution of. Um, now is this? I think this is grounded bats, is it? Um, and you can see that there's, you know, right at the start up to. 1990 there's some records in Aberdeen um, records in southeast um, England and a few along the south coast yeah. um, and basically as time goes on there seems to be this gradual sort of joining of the dots and this sort of spreading northwards and westwards throughout the British Isles but it's 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 a difficult it's difficult to decide whether they are actually my, my feeling is that they are spreading and I think climate change is playing a role in this. But you can look at some of these individual places like, um, I mean, Northern Ireland, for example, you know, it seems to have suddenly appeared there. Yeah. Um, but really that was when they were discovered. Yeah. Um, and it's the same with, um, you know, lots of these other places. You know, they were probably there all along. Um, and this, this spread from the southeast coast, you know, we would expect a migratory bat to be lots of records along the southeast. Yeah. Um, this is a dense population of people as well in the southeast. So maybe that's perhaps why there's more records of bats here. Yeah. Um, it's interesting if you if you plot the um, records of Nathusius pipistrels um, with, I think, number of records on the side and time on the bottom, you'll see this lovely gradual increase across a long time. If you just plot the grounded bats, so these are just bats that have just, they're grounded for whatever reason, they're exhausted, they've been caught by a cat. Um, in theory, those, those sort of records shouldn't change much over the years, the numbers. And, and if you plot them, they don't actually, you don't really get a big increase as time goes on, which is sort of going against the theory that we're getting an increase in the thesis pipistrels. Um, I mean, I can sort of argue from both sides, really. And uh, I can't really provide evidence for, for sort of overwhelming evidence for one or the other. I, my gut feeling is that they are spreading. It's interesting that a lot of these lakes that they seem to really depend on, they, I mean, the, these lakes are important habitats for them, not only, I, I imagine, because it's where um, there's a lot of insect prey, um, but also there for a migratory bat, it's probably an important feature on the landscape, you know, something um, easy to find. Um, and there's lots of abundant prey when they get there. Yeah. Um, a lot of these lakes, like Blagden Lake, um, we've got Chew Lake, we've got um, Rutland Water. Yeah. I mean, they're all pretty newish lakes, a lot of them sort of 1930s, 1960s. Okay. Um, and I'm sure the Thesis Pipistrels weren't there before then. 
I imagine. Um, the only exception, of, of course, is Loch Ness, which has been there for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't have overwhelming evidence for one or the other, but my gut feeling is that they are spreading. Um, well, so certainly the one thing that is absolutely definite is the, uh, the occurrence of verified records is most definitely spreading as more people know what it is they're recording and and more people are involved in bats as well because again back back up here up to 1990 how many people actually were involved in bats how many people owned a bat detector i mean compared to today i mean enough you know, it'd probably be, I, I wouldn't even want to guess how many people you know, would have owned a bat detector up until 1990. I mean, it's probably less than 10 people, perhaps, in the whole of the British Isles. <laughs> it's interesting the Aberdeenshire one, because it's just because that's where a lot of the bat research was, and that's where exactly. the bat detectors were. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So it, it is fascinating when you look at this, and I don't want to get too heavily into what I'm going to say, but, uh, but of course, along this south coast now, uh, thanks initially to Chris Nason, who I think was the first person that uh, highlighted this. Um, we've got, you know, pretty good evidence that we've got Cool's Pipistrelle occurring as well, which are phonically, uh, in other words, acoustically from a direct location, extremely similar to Nathusia's Pipistrelle. Do, do, do you think there's a small chance that some of your Nathusia's Pips or the, some of other people's enthusiast pip acoustic records, especially along the south coast. Some of these might be cool's pip, but at the time we weren't thinking about that maybe 10 years ago. Any thoughts on that? Definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it's probably a, a very small proportion because if, if you look at the number of grounded calls to grounded enthusiast pip astral, there's a huge difference. I and mean, I'm just sort of guessing, but I, I think I probably have, oh, I don't know, maybe 500 records of grounded enthusiasts against possibly five calls. I'm not, not totally sure on those figures, but it's probably something like that. Um, but yes, you're, you're right. There's definitely going to be some, some uh, confusion with enthusiasts and calls. Yeah. Okay, right, I want us to get back to the presentation um, and... This, I'll just add to this enthusiasts, but still stuff. Yeah, please the, do. the work the BCT's been doing uh, with Daniel Hargreaves has been really exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, doing all this trapping, ringing bats. I mean, but they've found some fascinating stuff about the distances the bats are yeah. travelling. They're crossing the channel. They're crossing the North Sea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, sh I should just throw that in there because they they've really sort of taken the ball and run with it, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah, and amazing, amazing stories. And we're seeing crossing the North Sea. It's kind of like crossing the North Sea and then going massive distances <laughs> it's uh, yeah yeah okay let's uh, let's talk this this is something no i'm gonna put my hands up and i'm gonna say that i never did a bats and roadside mammals survey but i had many friends or people that i knew that did and of course we've got a couple of uh, people here in this picture that geographically are uh, quite close to where uh, i'm sitting now uh, john haddo and and Youngman, um, but you were you were very heavily involved in this uh, BCT project, which then eventually became, I think, what we would call today IBATS. Do you want to talk a little bit about about this project, please? Yeah. 
Yeah, it, it actually started um, because uh, uh, Ireland wanted to do, they wanted to start monitoring their bats. Um, I think they monitored the horseshoe bats, but nothing else. Um, and they wanted a method that could be, that they didn't have that many volunteers in Ireland. Uh, and they wanted a method that, that could be rolled out um, that didn't need that many people and could cover huge areas. Um, and they approached the BCT to try and come up with a method um, to monitor their bats. And Colin, Colin Cato, who we were talking about earlier, came up with the idea that maybe we could attach bat detectors to cars. I think, I think he knew some um, people in mainland Europe who I think they were attaching detectors to bicycles. Um, so he, he asked me if I could try and come up with some sort of method to survey um, survey bats via cars. I'd, I'd actually done done this as part of my PhD. I'd not not time expansion detectors, but I'd put um, hexadine detectors on the roof of my car to look at pipistrels all grouped together and lysless bats, because in Ireland you only get lysless bats. It's the only big bat you get. Um, and I have these two detectors stuck to the roof, um, one, one wire going into one, one ear of the headphones and one ear, one wire going into the other one. And so I could tell if it was a Lysa's bat or a Pipistrel bat as I drove along. Um, and then rather dangerously, I'd have a pad on my lap um, and would write down um, the mileage and, and whether it was a Methusius, sorry, whether it was a Pipistrel or a Lysa's bat. And, and that way I could work out um, how far along the route I'd gone, what the habitat was at the time by looking at uh, how far along the route you'd gone uh, and what species it was. So I, I was looking at habitat and looking at how that, I'd do it every week and I'd look at how, um, how habitat use varied throughout the year. So I'd had some experience of using cars, um, but this method, I thought it needs something where you can, you can identify, you can separate the, uh, the uh, species. So we came up with this method using time expansion bat detectors. This is an old, this is a tranquility transect. Yeah. yeah. Which I think that David Bell actually came up with for this. I may, may be wrong about that. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, he, he, he produced the original tranquilities and then I think he had certainly three, maybe four different uh, models. So he could very well have, uh, could very well have came up with this particular but I came up with this uh, sort of a Heath Robinson thing, really. It was a time expansion bat detector connected to a mini disc. Yeah. And then in the car, there was a, I think it was a GPS. So you, you, could, you could sort of link this data together when you, when you got home. So you knew yeah. how far along the, how far the sound you were recording was along the mini disc. Um, and you could match this up with the time that the GPS recording was, was taken. So you could work out exactly where you were on the map uh, when the species recording. Um, and the idea was in Ireland that they would survey all these, uh, I think it was 10K squares, and they would survey this twice throughout the season. And they would do this year after year after year, and they would be able to monitor, um, I think it was common, soprano, Methusius, and Lysler's bats. Um, the long-eared myotis they couldn't do. And they're actually still using this method today. I'm still asked to actually do some uh, QA on it um, from time to time. QA, that is the yeah. right yeah. Yes, uh -huh. um, So they're still using that method today. Um, and I think we 
I think we decided that we try and roll out a method in, in the UK. Um, it's probably Colin's idea, I, I can't remember, but we got funding from the People's Trust for Endangered Species. Um, so it was a joint project between um, PTS and BCT to, now what was the point of it? <laughs> the point of the bats and roadside mammal survey was just a survey for bats so i think we weren't monitoring it was to try and get lots and lots of records correct me if you remember differently um but it was to get lots and lots of records throughout the whole of the uk so we um but, but I sorry it was to, i seem to recall and i might and i might because i never did one but i seem to recall was there not something that if you came across roadkill or right. another mammal species crossing in front of the car whilst you were doing it that you maybe made a note of that as well yeah you're perhaps. absolutely right so yeah. it, was, yeah. it was the same system for ireland um except yeah. i think in in uh in the uk we managed to get gps's that had os maps on it so you could follow a, a route that you'd drawn on the map and yeah you're right as you drove along you you wrote down if you saw any any mammals dead or alive on the roads um I don't have anything else of interest. So we, we wrote down owls and stuff. Uh, and I should have mentioned that we drove at 15 miles an hour. Um, and we had one of these flashing beacons on the car to warn people that you were going such a ridiculously slow speed. And the reason that we went at such a slow speed was because if you went too fast, the Doppler effect would have a, an effect on, on the back calls. So you could shift the frequency of calls up. So you could get. Um, you know, common pipistrels shifting towards soprano pipistrels if you try too yeah. fast. And yeah. so we, we tried to keep the speed as low as possible and also to minimise wind resistance. Although we did cut that down, I think, by having the, the detector inside the, the, uh, inside the car, uh, pointing out of the, um, out of the car window. But it, was, it was pretty successful, really. I think we ended up with maybe 15 bat groups involved and they were spotted, maybe 20, maybe... They were dotted throughout the UK. Um, and we did this, I think we did the Bats and Roadside Mammals project for about three, four years until funding ran out. Okay. Um, and at that point, um, that's when I think Kate, Kate Jones, um, working with BCT, I think she got money, where'd she get money from? I've got a feeling it was the Darwin Initiative, I'm not totally sure. But it was to roll out a similar project throughout the whole of Europe. So the Bats and Roadside Mammals project then became the IBATS UK project under the umbrella of the IBATS project, which was doing a similar monitoring thing, but rolled out throughout Europe. Um, so we, we, we started off in Europe with three countries, which I think were Romania, it was Western Russia, um, we went to a place called Bryansk, I think, um, Bulgaria, uh, I think Hungary were involved as well. Okay. Um, I yeah. didn't go to that one. So yeah, it was, to, it was to try to roll out this monitoring thing throughout all these European countries. Um, where was I going to go with that? Um, do you have another question to hand? No, no, of course. Uh, so we're talking about the bats and roadside mammals, uh, eye bats, and how how it was uh, how it all then developed into a much bigger uh, yes. thing. Yes. Um, I'll tell you what I'm going to ask, right? Because back then. Um, especially you know the bats and roadside mammals bit and what you were doing in northern ireland uh, before that look we didn't have uh, auto classifiers and full spectrum uh, recordings that we could fist through very very well relatively more quickly back then we had mini disc recorders 
Okay, some of us had cassette recorders, but those of us that were technologically advanced had made this. If, if anybody's watching this, by the way, and you don't know what me and John's talking about, Google all these things, all right? Google all these things if you don't know what they are. But we had many disc recorders, and you pretty much had to listen through the whole survey in terms of time scale in order to then work out if you'd recorded a bat and then yeah. using using the start the time you switched the mini disc on compared to how far into the recording the bat call occurred you could then possibly work out what time of night it was and, I mean, exactly. and back then john i remember doing similar work with a david dale tranquility bat detector and a mini disc and people would look at me massively jealous that I had this advanced technology, which looking back on now, it was just so cumbersome, yeah? Um, oh, just, do you remember how hard it was to get the sounds off the mini disc onto the computer? Oh, I mean, it just wasn't yeah. easy, was it? Yeah, because you had to play something like bat sound. You had to play that in live record mode as you played the mini disc. Yeah. So in order to record what was on the mini disc onto bat sound, if I remember that was well, I did. I yeah. did. There was a program you could use that meant that you could just leave the thing. So you press play and then you leave it, and it would it would record the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I, I remember Keith. You know Keith French. Okay, you've met Keith, and uh, and uh, interesting enough, Keith and Andy, when they first discovered Nithusius papistrel in Epping Forest. And this was before they, I think they'd only met me once at this point, and I didn't know what I was talking about anyway, but I remember from their very first recordings of Nathusis Pipistrel in Epping, which would have been the early 2000s, I think, from memory. And they sent the recordings to yourself. You probably don't remember that, but they sent the recordings to yourself. to oh, I do the record. Yeah, yeah. But I remember Keith, going back to the mini-disc thing, I mean, Keith just used to describe it as watching a game of tennis where there was just one tennis player. You know, like with tennis, you're watching tennis, you're doing this between where the ball's going. And Keith, he used to do this thing where he would just be kind of, you know, and this is him watching the, the mini disc, the tape recordings going through a screen and then the screen then disappearing and then it's starting again at this side, you know. And he would do this for hours. <laughs> 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 a 90 minute track from these yeah. surveys so i mean all in the uk all, all the minis would get sent to me and i had to deal with all of them yeah. so we 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 did um i can't remember i think what the first year each group did about four surveys i think yeah. so every mini disc would get sent to me then i'd have to transfer it to make a 90 minute track and then i found this bit of software that would split into handy five minute chunks okay um which made it easier to go through because that sound wouldn't open a 90 minute file. Yeah. And then I, I seem to remember that um, I almost wept with joy when this guy did it. I can't remember, he was, he was the computer guy at BCT, he probably still works there, but he came up with this Excel macro that meant that you could you could paste the, the times that you found the, um, the times at which you found recordings and the the uh, file number, because every five minute file had a number, so it'd be one for five minute, you know, yeah. two for the five to 10 minute. And you could put this in and then press enter and it would instantly come up with the grid reference. 
and I almost wept when he, he did that. He said it took him about half an hour to do it, but it, God, it saved me hours and hours and hours. Um, but even now I laugh and I still think that we that I had to do that because now you know the tracks actually have that data in, embedded in them, don't they? And just you can just drive around with a back recorder on and yeah. So, on. so yeah, see so you, you you youngsters of today, you don't know that you're bored. Oh, you've got to eat. <laughs> now, of course, you generate. You know, this huge, this huge amount of data that you have to go through. Yeah, I just imagine what it would be like in today's world. Uh, I don't know, doing something like, you know, six months work for a, a wind farm application, and you've maybe got 50,000 back passes. I just wonder what that would look like trying to do that with the technology we had available to us in the 1990s or the early yeah. 2000s. That would just, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, that, uh, let's not think about it. It's good that we have some of this uh, automatic identification software now, isn't it? Even just to get rid of the pips. Yeah. Because um, yeah. I know um, I was speaking to Neve Roche in Ireland, who, who runs the, the monitoring stuff, and they they still go through all the all the sonograms manually. Yeah. Um, but over the last couple of years, they've they've been introducing um, the automatic classifiers so that I think they're hoping to just move away from doing it manually because it takes an awful long time to go through sonograph to sonograph to sonogram. Yeah. Um, so. I, I wasn't going to mention automated classifiers really um, too much um, and I don't think I've, I don't know what your answer to this is going to be okay uh, and I don't suppose there's a right or there's a wrong answer but um, I mean my perspective has changed over the last five, six, seven years on Do these things. Um, but are, are you quite, have you got quite a balanced perspective or do you think that automated classification is the worst thing that could have ever happened? Or are you somebody that relies a lot on automated classifiers when it comes to your well, work? I mean, where are you kind of sitting in that spectrum? I think they're brilliant. I think when they first came out, they, they, they were pretty bad really. So much misidentification. Um, I mean, some, some of them, I mean, now the, the ones uh, Stuart Newson's doing with the BTO yeah. and the, the um, oh, oh, mine's gone blank. Hang on, I've got it here. Uh, what's it called? Uh, yeah, Sonobat. Yeah, Sonobat. Yeah. I think they're brilliant. I think they're really good. I mean, first of all, the most important thing I think these, these automatic identification things should do is get rid of PIPs. Get rid of the pips. I mean, 85% of the calls are going to be common pipistrels and soprano pipistrels, aren't they? Yeah. Um, you know, the, and I, I'm pretty confident that they're, they're very, very good at identifying those. But now they, they seem to be really good at identifying other, other stuff. I mean, Barber Stells, um, Sonograt Bat seems brilliant at identifying those, as does the BTO thing. Um, but, but I think even, I think you should never just rely on it completely. I mean, I, I've seen people do this with the, it's the echo meter touch, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they'll, they'll sit there with the echo meter touch and say, serotin, noctual, lyslers, and just, and they'll just rely on it. And you should never do that really. Uh, as I said, it's okay for pips and maybe barbstels perhaps. I'm not, not sure how good it is with barbstels, but, um, you know, I think they're I think they're a brilliant tool, but I think you should use them with other things. You should, if it flags up things like, you know, natural bats and whiskered bats, go and have a look. You know, do, do have a look at a selection of them. 
mean, I've just done some recently. We've been doing a project on serotins, um, mainly run by other people in the back group, um, particularly Tricia Scott, who's our chair. Um, but we've been running it through the BTA pipeline. Um, and it's picked up quite a few natural bats, which I'm pretty sure aren't. Um, but it helps us because it just categorizes all this stuff and then you can look at it yourself. So no, nothing's going to be right 100% of the time. And, and certainly I'm not either. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're yeah. Better than, they're, yeah. I'm sure they're better than me in, in, you know, in some cases. Um, yeah, but, um, a classifier uh, it might pick up things that a human at any level might miss mm. um, so but by the same token it might send you down the wrong route and, and I think where I come from well, I kind of I've thought a lot about this because uh, I've, I've had to write about it now and again um, I call it like a hybrid approach where you shouldn't really be using a classifier unless you've got a pretty good grounding on bat sound acoustics in the first place. And, you know, using a classifier to, first of all, sort the data into various buckets. And I would definitely agree. I think a lot of the time they're pretty good at sorting the pips and separating the pips. Um, but for the 15%, as you describe it, for the 15% of other stuff, that almost becomes manageable to look at manually, if, yeah. if that's what you feel you need to do. Um, I'm a hundred I mean, miles away there from what you're trying to say. Um, but the, I mean, even if you generate thousands of calls of natural bats, yeah. you know, have a look at a sample of them to make sure it's getting it right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. and of course, a lot of these classifiers don't take into account social calls, do they? Although I think the BTO one, does the BTO one? I, th sure. I, think, I, think, I think Stuart's beginning to try with that for certain social calls, but yeah. as you know better than I do, there is such a variation. I, I think I did offer him, I think I did offer him my social calls, I can't remember now. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it'd be good to include that as well, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, there are certain, there are certain social calls that get regularly produced, uh, like your PIP type D social calls for argument's sake, where you would think it, it should be possible to have a classifier that would identify those sort of things or mm. noxial lysless advertisement calls, uh, that kind of stuff. But of course, there's a whole range of other social calls uh, that, you know, they're so variable, uh, yeah. you know, and yeah, it's... But he seems to be doing a great job including crickets and birds yeah. and things, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, right, let's let's uh, let's let's move back to the the uh, PowerPoint. This has been fascinating stuff. I uh, want to just look. We've got a few things here, right? Uh, because you've been all over the world doing bat work, and I know you've been in many places in Europe, and I suspect you've been some places elsewhere beyond Europe that's not mentioned here. But do you want to pick out two or three highlights from uh, these places, um, or? touch on what some of these pictures are just uh, just well, I, I guess the the most important not important one but the one I remember most is, is working in Madagascar okay. I went there four times um 1999 2000 2003 and 2004 I think um the the first time I worked there was through um Queen's University Belfast and Aberdeen University and it was a 
it was a project to go out and see if we could um, basically catch as many bats as we could and record their um, echolocation calls so that it was uh, simpler in the future for, for researchers to, to well work with the bats really. I mean, they did so they didn't have to catch them all the time. Um, so we went out to a place um, called uh, Ambudi Farah, which is on the um, Maswala Peninsula, I think. Okay. Um, it's, no, it's near a place called um, Nosy Manga Bay, which I don't know if anyone remembers um, Gerald Durrell, but he, he went out there to have a look at the II. I think he, I think he oh, made no. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we, we, we worked near there. <clears throat> and um, basically, we, we spent about five weeks out there, um, mainly camped on a beach for about three weeks were, and, and trekking up into the forest. Um, but also going up into the, the sort of pristine rainforest, um, netting for bats. Um, and that, that was the first time I'd done anything like that. Um, and, and that was absolutely fascinating. It was, it was really hard. Um, but where it's funny, when I speak to people about trapping in places like that, they, they go on about how amazing it was, but they, they leave out the bit about how hard it was. And maybe it was just hard for me, but it really is hard coping with the, you know, those temperatures, the, yeah. the insects, the non-stop sort of biting insects, um, you know, the food. But I think all that goes towards making it such a, a, a sort of memorable experience, really. Yeah. But the, the meeting the people was, was absolutely fantastic. Um, and working in, in this forest, um, and catching these bats that you, you'd never caught before. We, we went out there, you know, the aim was to just catch a, a variety of bats, but what we really wanted to catch was the um, Madagascar sucker-footed bat, Mysopoda aurita, which okay. is this bat that has um, these suckers on its wrists and, and ankles, um, similar to the, to the bats in, in South America, which also have suckers on their, their wrists and ankles. Um, I think they use a different kind of... Um, adhesion so they've evolved completely separately i think the ones in in south america i've forgotten the genus you can't remember can you now no it's not off uh, the top of my head no no, no. i think i've gone blank but i think they they actually genuinely use suckers whereas the ones in madagascar i think i think it's called wet adhesion it's slightly different anyway what we really want to do is catch one of these like a bat with suckers on it I'm amazing um so we, we caught all sorts of other bats we were catching um uh, otomops these these that they're a bit, they're um, a bit like Tadarida. Okay. Um, these, these big ears and the mushroom shaped type tragus. Lots of Minioptorus. Um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Scotophyllus, lots of Pipistrellus. Um, oh, lots of great Hippocidrids as well. And these trident nosed bats. Um, and it wasn't actually till the, the second night before last that we, we caught a, a sucker footed bat. And it was just so exciting. Um, catching this sucker-footed bat, it's, it's such a, it reminded me a bit of our long-eared bats, but even gentler in a way. Okay. And it was just, I remember it was just sitting there in my gloved hands, sort of staring up at us. Um, really beautiful little bat. Um, and they, they think that it, that they know now actually, some research since, that it, it, it um, resides in these rolled up banana um, leaves and uh, the, oh, what's it called? I know the Latin name, um, Ravenala. 
um, leaves. So there's this like this cone of leaves, and they 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 roost inside them. Um, and they have this amazing echolocation as well. It's it's, it's like a I say amazing echolocation. I can't really demonstrate it, can I? It, it's like a sort of broken call. It's almost like a, a barbastrel that in elongated this, this sort of um, CF to FM shape that's broken. It's like um, okay. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I love that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, we caught this on the second to last day, which was um, really, really exciting. Um, it was thought to be a really rare bat, but on our second trip, we, we, we once I'd recorded the echolocation and knew what it sounded like, um, the second trip, we, we did go to Nosy Mangabe, um, and we, I think we worked mainly there. Um, but we were hearing it everywhere there and, and on the coast. Okay. So actually, you know, using echolocation, we realised it was much more common than was previously thought, because it, you know, it's thought to be pretty rare. Yeah. Um, what else were we doing there? I think the second trip as well was just a follow-up. So we, we ended up putting together a manual of bat, of bat echolocation calls um, and a sort of uh, identification guide which was really based on a French, an identification guide of bats in the hand rather than application, yeah. which was based on a lot of work, which was done um, by a French chap. Um, his name may be Pettigrew, I may have got that wrong though, um, which I I actually translated word for word pretty much, as I don't speak French using a dictionary. Um, but yeah, that was, that was really, really exciting. Um, those first two years we went out there. Wow. wow. Um, a place I've never been to Madagascar, um, and uh, yeah, I've always don't know. I've always had ever since uh, childhood, uh, not because of bats. This was long before I was interested in bats, but ever since childhood, I've always, I've always emotionally for some reason been drawn towards wanting to go to Madagascar. You know probably for lemurs and stuff like this, I would imagine, but... Uh... Yeah, it really is. It is an amazing place. Yeah. Interestingly, though, as far as bats are concerned, generally, we, we didn't catch that much in, in forests. Okay. Um, so the, there was one trip, it was the third year I went, and it was a, it was a separate thing. It was, that was another Darwin initiative um, run by Paul Racy and uh, Richard Jenkins, and I went out there to help. Um, and we went to the, the Masuala Peninsula. We, we went, we, we trekked for three days into the forest, you know, living in these tents, um, living on beans and rice. And uh, it, was, it was hard. I mean, lots and lots of leeches there. But I remember that trip. I think that particular time, I was only out in the forest for two weeks. Maybe it was two and a half weeks. And in that time, we caught something like uh, four bats. Wow. It, it, it was awful. That's a really. lot. That's a yeah. lot of effort for and it was time, isn't it? Of some of those rainforest areas. Yeah. Um, I mean, the rain didn't help. It really rained a lot. And of yeah. course, as you know, once your mist nets get get wet, the, the, there's no back going to go into those uh, unless you've placed it near a roost or something. Yeah. Um, so that made it very difficult. Because um, I, I got very jealous of you know talking to people that were working in trinidad and they just seemed to pop the nets up and they, they'd be working all nights on the one net just getting all back <laughs> it wasn't yeah. the case in madagascar um but it was very rewarding you know we did get a wide, wide range of species i think my favorite was the little rosetta spats they're very very similar to the um the european you know rosetta uh, yeah but uh, europe have got the egyptian fruit bat okay yes, so, yeah. fruit bat. 
Yeah. Um, but this is the, the Madagascar version of it. But they're, they're so cute. Yeah. Um, Very quickly on some of these other places, uh, yeah. Thailand, uh, Romania, Russia, Ukraine, Myanmar. Thailand and Myanmar was yet another. Yeah. This, this was another project that wasn't really mine. Um, Ian Mackey and Paul Racy got funding again from the Darwin Initiative to do some work out there. Yeah. Um, Ian did most of the work in Myanmar, but we did get to do a couple of trips out there, which is where I got this, this photograph of um, the kitty's hognose bat. Okay. And I was mainly um, working in Thailand, and the, the aim of the project there um, was to... They have these huge colonies of um, Tadarida plicata, the wrinkled nose bat. Oh, cool. Yes. Uh -huh. Very simple, similar to the um, Tadarida brasiliensis. Yeah. They have these huge colonies, um, three to four million bats in caves. And my job really was to go out to these caves um, with one of uh, with my Thai student and try and record bats at cave entrances to try and come up with a, a way of counting them. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, I mean, often I had to do on my own. So I was going oh. off in Thailand with no, no one with me, not having a clue about the language, but just knowing that roughly there's a cave in a particular place. I, I, just, I, just, I just want to say something here before you go much further, but I've been to one of the big bat caves in Thailand. I think the one I've been to is, is it Rata, Ratabui? I maybe got the pronunciation wrong. You're talking like, I don't know, I think you're talking like millions of bats coming out pretty quickly and you're trying to count them. Is that kind of what's going on here? Yeah. That's exactly it. I think I know the cave you're, you're, you're thinking of. It's the one, uh, oh, what, what province is it in? It's, it's south of Bangkok. And oh, south of it, Bangkok. Uh, the one I'm thinking about is south of Bangkok. Yeah. Um, I've maybe got the name wrong. And, and there's like a village underneath it. And... When I was there, which would have been about maybe 20 years ago, they actually had a commentary in Chinese about the bats coming out of the cave because the Chinese community in Thailand, of course, the yeah. Chinese culture views bats very favourably. And every night they would have a commentary in Chinese for Chinese tourists that were coming to watch the bats coming out of this. I was like, it's a bit like, uh, what's the one in Texas where they've got the biggest colony in the world? Um, Bracken cave. cave. Yeah. It's a bit like not quite as big as that in terms of numbers, but that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, there is one I remember a lot of the tourists go to. It's like as a market underneath. But it, yeah. And, yeah. And on Saturdays, they open up the cave to allow the, the locals to go in to scrape the guano off the rocks. Okay. And uh, we were lucky enough to be there on a Saturday and they let us in. Um, and that, that was amazing, absolutely amazing. I mean, they, we, these guys were going in with a, a rag across their faces and a, a candle, and they would crawl right into these caves, really, really dark, and they would be scraping guano off into the little sacks. Yeah. And every family um, had their own little patch of rocks yeah. that they, they were only allowed to get guano off there. But I remember going in there and there'd be, you know, be rain, raining droppings and urine and, um, yeah. you know, cockroaches and all sorts of insects crawling over the over the rocks and snakes and things and uh absolutely amazing place but we, yeah that was the first place i went where they where i saw the bats coming out and they they, they come out about an hour before sunset don't they and it's just this smoke trail going off into the distance 
and it just goes on and on and on all night. So you're not sitting there going one, two, yeah. three, four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, we, you know, we didn't actually film there because it, there was there's too many tourists. Uh, and I don't think the monks let us, the, the monks owned the cave right, um, or yeah. had rights to the cave and they, they wouldn't let us film there. But I, I had to go off mainly on my own to all these other caves using a, a high speed camera um, and some and, and infrared lights. So it's high speed infrared camera and lights and try and, and film them as they came out. And then the, the idea was that. <laughs> That we try and count them off the off the slowed down video footage. It was it was ridiculous, really. Yeah. Uh, I tried various things like um, you know this motion sensitive software, but it wasn't very well developed then. Um, and also the problem with a lot of these caves is you, you realise after a while that they're not just coming out of that your entrance; they're coming out of another one on the other side of the the, the mountain or the, the yeah. hill. Yeah. Um, so it was really difficult. A lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure we we broke any new ground. Um, Although we did get to, to go to, I mean, I did get to see lots of interesting caves. Um, uh, so that, that was quite good. And also that we got a lot more out of it. My, my student was interviewing some of the monks and the people that gathered um, the guano to ask them about that. Um, we, we did have some hairy moments at caves because they, they're, they're fiercely guarded, um, these caves. I mean, historically, yeah. there's been fights over them and people killed. Yeah, I remember one time in particular, we went to visit a cave I'd already visited. It was just my, me and my student. And we didn't realise that the cave had changed hands. And we we didn't actually have permission to be there. Okay. And we were followed up the side of this hill by a guy with a with a with a shotgun. Yeah. And uh, I just assumed it was okay because my student didn't say anything. Yeah. But I think because she thought I was in charge, you know, I would decide what to do. And this guy was with us the whole time until eventually she turned to me and said, I, I, I think we need to go now. I, I think we'd better go. Um, it, it's a bit dangerous. Yeah. And uh, at that point, I got pretty scared and we went down the hill pretty fast, <laughs> very closely behind. Um, so, yeah, interesting experiences. Um, but that, that, I mean, it's just fantastic working in these countries and seeing these different species. Um, and, and of course, we, we you know we recorded lots of echolocation calls there as well. And uh, Ian did some great work on that sort of thing in, in Myanmar. Um, now, I remember I remember Ian uh, telling me years ago about some of his experiences in Myanmar, uh, including you know things like getting on the plane to travel there, not even being certain whether or not uh, the Myanmar authorities would be granting the permission to go to the places or do the stuff that had been planned. I can't remember the exact story now, but he told me one pretty horrendous story where they were pretty much sitting about for ages in a hotel or a bed and breakfast somewhere. Not, not sure if they're even going to be allowed to stay in the country, I think, from memory. Does that does, does that kind of tie in with some of the things you've heard from you and yourself? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yes. And Ian's, Ian's quite fearless as well. So he, 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 I mean, nothing in Myanmar would put him off. He'd just go to sort of the right places and catch bats, not, you know. Whereas I'd be terribly worried about, you know, what sort of trouble you could get into. Because it's, you know, it's Myanmar. It can be yeah. quite dangerous. Yeah, it's a very, although, although the countries are adjacent to each other, uh, very, very different countries in terms of, uh, 
I suppose, political setup uh, that's kind of trying to be as polite as possible, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, I, I want to move on because uh, time's getting on and we have already mentioned mm. uh, the original book, Bats of Britain and Ireland, that we're talking about earlier. And unbeknown to all of us, and probably unbeknown to you at the time when you produced this book, um, this pretty much then led you on to what we call the British Bat Calls, a guide to species identification, which when this came out, this really did blow the socks off of many more people at this point are doing bat work. Bat consultancies become a lot more uh, mainstream, I suppose, by the time the second book came out. The second book was going to have a much greater reach uh, than the first book. And it was eagerly awaited. Uh, I seem to remember at the time, many of us were talking for quite a few years about this book was on its way and we were all quite excited about it. Uh, I'm just going to go back a, a notch there. Um, th this, this is, I mean, if the first book took you a while to put together, the second book, this was going up a level. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that book, didn't it take something like, was it 10 years or 12 years after the first one? I, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be like that um, because originally, um, I think about a year after the first book came out, I got sent lots of different calls and I started to collect a lot more calls, um, including lots of social calls. Um, and I thought, you know, really, I should, I mean, quite quickly, I thought that the first book was rubbish, really. <laughs> and I thought I really need to put something else out. And the original idea was to do a European book, actually. Okay. Um, I, actually, it changed, it changed. The first idea was I would do it with Colin. Um, and I quickly realised that Colin was hoping that although we do it together, um, uh, I would do all the work and he wouldn't do very much. And I don't mind saying that because anyone that knows Colin will, will understand what, what I just said. <laughs> um, and then it was going to be a European book. And uh, I think I got, I tried to get Danilo Russo involved. Okay. But really, we all just sat about and did nothing for about six years. And I, I just couldn't find time to do it. Um, and I, it wasn't really until I met, um, it was Nigel, Nigel Masson, who we yes, both know. And uh, he took over the, um, he, well, he took over Nigel, the project. Nigel was, and I might have the time track wrong here, but Alana Ecology, uh, was bought over by NHBS. Yes. Yeah. And that meant that NHBS then became considerably more than just a, a, an organization that uh, sold books. Uh, they became like a wildlife supplies supplier generally, which is what Alana was doing. And at that, at some point in that process, Nigel Masson, who's the owner of Pelagic Publishing, which wasn't really, I don't even know if it existed back then. If it did, it was much smaller. But Nigel was uh, at one point the manager or one of the managers at NHBS. So you've kind of got this link between 
NHBS Alana Nigel. Does that kind of make sense from your perspective? Yeah, that, that does that does make sense. It, yeah. It'll come back to me a bit now. Yeah, yeah I remember that the main difference was um that uh Andrew uh didn't ever hassle me, whereas Nigel did uh, and still yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was the main reason the book started happening because he, he and also he got very enthusiastic about it and saying you know we can do this and that and we can i'm going to use these people and i thought oh i better actually do something um so that that's really when it took off and i started pulling all the information um together i mean it probably took about i, I had a fair amount of information already but it probably took about four years to put it all together properly yeah. i think yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of the information in the Bats of Britain and Ireland really needed to be rewritten. Um, I, I know there's some of it was the same, but most of it needed to be rewritten. And then, of course, there was all the, there was a lot more, I had a lot more recordings of variation in echolocation calls um, and more social calls. John, I'm trying to remember exactly what, what was in it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there was there was something like 12 or 13 years between these two books coming out. So I think the first book was 1999. I think the first edition of the British Bat Calls book, was that not around about 2011, 2012? Well, I'm just flicking to the front page, 2012, yeah. Okay, yeah, absolutely okay. right. Yeah. Um, I don't have a bad memory. No, no, it's okay. I mean, it's... Uh, I've, I've, I've had memory some research before today's interview <laughs> this book's very well thumbed which shows you that this is my memory it's not all in my head um, yeah so this this oh, i see this yeah there's a lot more information in this and, and uh sandy fowler um provided yeah. some frequency division um sections okay. in it as well yeah, for the zero crossing stuff and i think kate barlow she was involved as well i think kate's got her name there that's right kate was involved and yeah. philip briggs was involved Yes. Um, that's right. They helped with some of the yeah. call analysis chapters and, um, you know, uh, equipment chapters, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started to recruit, recruit a few other people um, to help with that one. Um, but this is, a, I mean, <laughs> the second book here. Um, I suppose after having done the first book, you probably were aware of how much work would be involved, what the process was, albeit you're now working with a different publisher. You're working with uh, Pelagic instead of Alana. You're working with Nigel instead of Andrew. So process is probably slightly different uh, comparing these two things. But you didn't, you didn't take on the second book uh, naively without appreciating how much would be involved in its production yeah yeah i mean actually the, the first book really was a, um, a load of printed a4 sheets i remember presenting it to andrew as i'd written it not realizing that that's how it was going to be banged i mean that was it really it was printed out and banged with this cover okay. um, whereas the, the second one i mean there was a lot more involved in, in terms of layout and what we're going to include like we had you know we had the emergence diagrams and the distribution maps um and of course this this wonderful cover yeah um so sorry i can't quite remember your question but yeah there, there, there was a lot more involved in this second yeah. and, and you know there's a lot more 
pleased with this book just in terms of the presentation yeah you know the, the first one i always thought was a bit scrappy mainly my fault you know it's, it was it was sort of thrown together really just the second one i spent a lot more time trying to polish it yeah. and making sure i got as much information as possible like uh, that, that i could at the time and approaching other people for the back calls i, I think I, there's probably quite a few calls in there that people kindly gave to me yes yeah, yeah there's a lot there's lots in here um argent beanman and uh yeah claire snowball yeah loads of people gave me calls yeah um which you know it wouldn't have been that book without people's uh, do you go through this process right allow uh, I try not to talk about myself too much when I do these interviews, but because you're an author, right, and we've both been through similar stuff in different ways, do you go through this process where in the production of something like this, you have moments or hours when you think, oh my goodness, this is like the best thing that I've ever seen, but I'm going to qualify that, okay? <laughs> But it's almost like an hour later, having had that uh, excitement of maybe coming up with a figure or a paragraph that at that moment in time, you maybe think that is absolutely amazing. Where did that come from? And then like an hour later, you just look at the whole thing and you just think this is a pile of nonsense. I wish I'd never started. Do you kind of go through those extremes and thought process or are you more kind of balanced throughout the whole thing? Uh, you know. It, no, it's exactly as you describe, and, and it is actually around figures, really. Yeah. To be honest, when you, when when I think of a way of presenting something, um, in such a way, um, because I mean I, I rely so much on um, remembering things visually, um, rather than text, and if I can present a figure in such a way that all the information is there and it's very clear, then th those are the moments when I think this is this is great. I've got this right. But yeah, there's plenty of there's plenty of lows where you think this is rubbish, or or, or where you think this is just too much. I just there's too much to do. There's no way I'll finish this. Um, you know, and I I did find this book, this second book, hard to break down into those little chunks because it was a lot more than the the first book. Yeah. I mean, in a way, the first book was really, um, you know, a bundle of. You, you probably wouldn't, may not describe it this, but I sort of describe it as a bundle of scrappy notes that I put together and was then banged, whereas the second one, you know, a lot, a lot more thought went into it. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, it was, a, it was a lot more, more difficult. Um, and then you end up with, Andy, you very, I found this photograph somewhere. I think I took this off your Facebook page. I, I love the fact that there's a, is that a coffee coffee at the background there <laughs> trying to keep you awake maybe i don't know what what this is oh this is yeah. the this is the third book isn't it this is the third book yeah, and, yeah. Uh, this this must have been when you've maybe printed it all off when it was almost finished it uh, is funny, that, that coffee there yeah. uh, a friend of mine andy a few doors up he's a, he's a paramedic and at okay. the time of um the pandemic well we're still in the pandemic but at yeah. the heart of the pandemic um, the, the the place where he worked, they were getting loads of free gifts to thank them, and uh, one of them was they got eight pallets of that coffee. Okay. <laughs> and he was just desperate to get rid of them. They all were. And he bought a load of Anthony, bought me half a pallet of those coffees, 
and they weren't they weren't very nice but that, that's that's why i have a, one of those there just um yeah sort of celebration for it being finished yeah yeah and well, that, the other um, thing is there it looks like a pir alarm yeah oh i'm not sure not sure <laughs> and and then we end up with this now look um wow okay so here this uh, and I, I think what i think what i'm gonna say about about this latest book which has only been out now what less than six months i think i've kind of lost track it was the tail yeah. end of the summer was it uh, when it came out um it's it's very very recent anyway uh, we are talking october, in, was, it, was it october yeah it might have been october it might have been it might have been until the autumn yeah and actually it was it started it started appearing and through people's doors very late October, early November, because I remember that now, because I was in the Dordogne and I couldn't get a hold of it because the copies uh, I'd paid Nigel for, <laughs> the copies I'd paid Nigel for was sitting here in the office here and I was down in the middle of France. So I was kind of was so anxious to see it, but I couldn't physically see it. Uh, and that was late October, early November, if I remember rightly. But this this is like a massive undertaking by comparison of what you've done before. Considerably more people uh, involved in uh, providing you with uh, their interpretation, their example calls, uh, people or groups of people writing individual subchapters of the species accounts, for example, writing some of the other chapters, more broadly speaking. And I'm trying to imagine, right, because I've been through the process myself a few times, when it's just me on my own, for argument's sake, just trying to, or me, Keith and Andy, just trying to control and put together what one person or three people are thinking about. I don't know how many people you had involved in this, but it's impressive. Uh, it is massively impressive. But that that gives you another layer of uh, production time in terms of time that you probably have never experienced before. Is, is that fair? I've never asked you about this, but that wasn't easy. <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't easy. And, and that wasn't meant, it wasn't meant to be that sort of book either. It yeah. was meant to be, when, when I first thought of doing the European book, or uh, I think Nigel sort of persuaded me to do it, I thought really it would be British back calls with the extra European species crowbarred in. Yeah. It's, it's the same book, but just saying British and European back calls, something like that. Yeah. In my in my head, I just thought, well, what, there's probably about, I don't know, 12 or more, more species, you know, should be easy just to throw those in, I'll get some recording. Yeah, so the, the stuff like party coloured bat, cools, pipistrel, uh, exactly. mouse here, but you know, stuff that you get kind of close to the British Isles, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then when I, when I finally got around to sort of putting a plan together, I got the European species list from somewhere or other put it in an Excel spreadsheet and just thought, oh, that that that's going to be a mountain to climb, isn't it? 
And I and then I just, I think I just left it for a couple of years, really. <laughs> I sort of mulled it over for a bit, but I just left it thinking, how am I going to do it? Shall I do, shall I do some trips around Europe and meet up with people and get some recordings? And I think it was after a couple of years I suddenly thought, well, why not actually get people that know what they're talking about to write these chapters? Because, yeah. you know, I don't know much about the particle about really. Yeah. You know, get someone that, you know, whenever they're out, they, they uh, encounter them quite a lot. Yeah. And, uh, and that was really when the book, you know, um, came, into, came into being. Everything changed then because I thought, well, this is great. I can, I can use all these experts from around Europe to write the different chapters. They can, they can go away themselves and research it as well, get all the calls and the social calls. Um, and then we can have these lovely, neat little chapters written by all these experts. And that, that's when it, it, you know, it really started working well. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was very hard to manage that many people. Yeah. Um, because, it, you know, obviously everyone has different experiences, they have different writing styles. Yes. Yeah. And, and to a certain extent, different, um, uh, you know, their English is, is some people's English wasn't, uh, what's happening, I describe it, you know, not quite the same as other people's. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that made it difficult, but, you know, brilliant to work with all those people. Everyone was so enthusiastic. I don't, I don't think I met anyone that said, no, I can't, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Everyone said, oh, I'd love to be involved in that. Um, and so I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it, just communicating with all these people, these experts. Yeah. Um, you know, de deadlines were another matter. That was that was interesting. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I, I wrote off. It, yeah, because you've got how many species it was. It probably says on here like 40, 44 species. Okay. Um, and one or two that actually aren't included. I've I've missed I missed out. I just. Yeah maybe talk about those in a minute but i remember that I, I asked everyone to write the chapters and said oh the deadline is i think i don't know a year's time or something okay and i think in a month maggie andrew sent me her her chapters yeah okay. amazing yeah uh, and then other ones i think you know it's two years past the deadline including mine one of mine yeah. um so it's very hard to manage all those different you know people have different commitments and availability so i think that was probably the hardest bit um and then, of course, there were these other chapters. I think I thought because my original section on social calls in in the second book yeah. was quite small, really. But I thought it's probably enough. Yeah. But then I thought it probably, you know, man, why don't we just have a chapter on social calls? Yeah. I think it was Ar Arjun Booman suggested um, Grace Marsh. She, she's yeah. doing a lot of work on and still is on social calls. And he said, "Oh, why don't you just ask her?" Yeah. She 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 said yes straight away. Okay. So, I mean, that was great. And, and every chapter was like that, really. You know, I just thought, well, get some other people that know more about it than you um, and, and they can write it. And also, of course, it means someone else is doing all the work. Well, not all the work, because obviously I have to, you know, edit it and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, a book like that is more achievable if you have lots of people involved, whereas if it's just me, it would probably never get done. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and most most of the holdups really were due to me. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, it is very, it was very difficult putting. I mean, just trying to get the photographs really. Um, but fortunately, I found. Um, I'll just turn Rene. Um, 
Benny Johnson, that's it. Yes, that's, that's who I thought yes. you were going to talk about, but I don't know what to say the name, just in case you were talking about it. Well, I'm not sure I pronounced it right, but oh, it was great when I found him. He's so generous with his photographs. And he had so many of the species that I couldn't track down. Um, so loads of the photos are his. Um, and then, of course, I got, I got, I always wanted Jens Rydell to do the cover. Yeah. Um, for, for the main reason, because Jens was the person who taught me about echolocation. Um, I first met Jens in Aberdeen and he took me to Seton Park and he drew sonograms in the mud there with a stick and described the different bats. Um, and, I mean, he really got me into the echolocation side of things. So I always wanted Jens to not only write some chapters, but I wanted his photograph, a photograph he'd taken on the cover. Yeah. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, as you know, Jens passed away last yeah. year very suddenly. It was, it was a shock yeah. to everybody. I'd, I'd, I'd never met him. Uh, I'd corresponded with him a couple of times by email and always very, very helpful, but I'd, I'd never met him. Uh, yeah, such an enthusiastic guy and always willing to give you his time. Um, but one of the main things I remember about him in, in Aberdeen and, and elsewhere, actually, is that he, his car was always a, a heap of crap. It was, it was an awful car, some old banger. And I remember everyone used to comment on it. And he said, the reason I have this is that the boot wouldn't lock, for example. And, he said, okay. and I said, you keep all this expensive equipment, Jens, in the boot of your car. Well, yeah. well, you know, you're not worried about it. And he said, who on earth would break into an old banger like that? <laughs> That's why I have an old banger. I'm not going to break into it. Oh, excellent. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. You've, you've told a story there about him drawing sonograms in mud. Mm. Yeah. That's the second time I've heard that story. And I might I might be misplacing who's told me that. Is it possible that when I was talking to Paul Racy, he might have described something like that? Uh, I, I don't know, but I've... But someone that we've done a talking about interview with in the last 12 months or so has uh, talked about uh, Jens drawing sonograms on mud. So you're not the only person that's experienced oh, that's that. <laughs> yeah. so, that's the way he always did it. Yeah. And that's I'm kind of thinking it must have been it must have been Paul because yeah. it must have been to do with Aberdeen. And I know that Paul Racy uh, did field trips and stuff with uh, Jens and stuff, I think. Yeah, he's worked with Jens a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a good way of it sticking in your memory, isn't it? To scratch it with a stick, you never forget. Yeah. I'm just wondering what, say, today's world, if people came on a, a batability or a, a Ridgeway Ecology training course and they and we did a presentation and we just, uh, don't know, we just went outside and we just drew all the sonograms and mud. I just wonder... Uh, Wonder what the feedback would be at the end of that course. Yeah. <laughs> if you're out in the field, I don't know how else you do it other than well, yeah. use yeah. a tablet. Oh, that's excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. So, um, are you pleased with the? Are you pleased with the book? I mean, overall. I mean, I, I know there will be. It's never perfect, and you should never make the perfect the enemy of the good, which is an expression I've stolen from somebody from the other side of the planet somewhere in the past. But overall, do you feel that it's it's what you what the vision was at the start? Do you, do you think you've got there? Um, yes, I'm, I'm really pleased, actually. As you say, you know, there, are, there there's a few mistakes, niggling, niggling mistakes in there um, that are a bit annoying. Um, but there's a, I've, I put together a web page, if anyone's interested, that has these mistakes. So, I mean, some of them are minor, some of them are fairly important. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually on my web page 
which is if you just type in Ridgeway Ecology, you'll see a link to it. Okay. But yeah, over, overall, I'm really pleased with it. I think it's come together really well. Um, there's a few things I'll change in the future. One, there's a couple of species I miss. One in particular is, um, oh, what's it called? Is it Geisler's long-eared? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, okay. yeah that's, that's a species, of, I'm pretty certain. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They, keep, they keep coming all the time. I mean, while I was writing the book, I think there were two yeah. more species came along. And I just put my head in my hands and just think, oh, I've got to now include that chapter. Like yeah. Motus crypticus, for example. Yeah. That wasn't there when I wrote the book, but I managed to get some recordings and you know, got a chapter in, so that, you know, but yes, overall, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. Um, I don't really look at it much since I've written it. I can't quite bring myself to look at it yet. I think I've got sick of looking at it. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. I'll tell you one of the worst things that's happened to me, right? I don't know if you've ever heard this, but uh, it's probably a couple of years ago now. Uh, someone someone asked me a question on social on social calls okay so it was over the internet it was just email correspondence and uh, and as part of the correspondence they came back with a, a counter question and they quoted something you know from a book somewhere right and i'm totally embarrassed with what i've got to say i wrote back and i said that's an interesting quote uh, where did you where did you find that and and they wrote back to me and said, it's out of your bloody book. <laughs> it was my own quote. <laughs> and I quickly, I quickly grabbed a copy of the book to find and go, oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't have you ever had an experience like that? I don't know. That was uh, that was pretty that was pretty dire. <laughs> I think that happens to me all the time, to be honest. <laughs> And that's the thing. If someone asks me a question, I go straight to the book to, yeah. you know, to, to have a look because I can't remember. Yeah, um, you can't. You can't. There's just so much. And I think again, what people don't realise um, between you finishing the, if you like, the final proof that goes to the publisher before it goes through the copy editing process and all this kind of stuff, between you actually providing that to somebody like Nigel at Pelagic. And then the book physically being in somebody's hands, you could be talking four, five, six, seven months between. Mm -hmm. So, so you've left the project, you know, say six months ago, when people are then reading about it for the first time. Uh, no, is that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, between times, your life, your life has gone on. You've had many more consultancy yeah. but work, other projects. Yeah, that's. I think this was over a year because it was right. so okay. because it was so complicated. Um, yeah, you you hand the book in finished, but then it comes out with all you know. There's lots of comments, and this figure isn't the right um, dots per square inch, and this needs to be changed, and this fig, you know. So that it does take a long time, and, and you're right. When that's finally done, it still takes another six months. Yeah. Um, where you know you have you moved on a bit, really. What, what, what are you like with the copy edit process? Um, because I, I mean, again, you know, when we're producing stuff here, right? We maybe have it proofread by four or five different people, right, before it goes to the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. And then the copy editing comes back. And for me anyway, it's like, you know, you've maybe got 300 pages and every single page, yeah? It's just mm -hmm. a list of comments from the copy editor. Uh, is that similar to yourself, is it? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I mean, there, there, I think there are a couple of chapters where it was, you know, not much or, or just, you know, minor stuff that was, you know, you accept all of it. But yeah, I remember a couple of chapters and just thinking, basically, I, I'm sort of rewriting this, aren't I? <laughs> you know, there's so much. Yeah. So many. Do you get quite? Do you get quite precious whereby every word becomes a prisoner, or do you broadly no, just no, say? No, not at all. No, I mean, the copy, copy editor we had. Um, can you can you remember? I think we had the same guy. He was. He oh, was, uh, Hugh Hugh Brazier. Hugh, he was brilliant. Yeah. yeah. He was really good. Yeah. Um, he was so good at uh, um, you know bringing out the best in each chapter and and. Yeah, perhaps finding a wording that explained things in a, in a better way. Yeah. Um, and without him, I think it would have been a fairly poor book, really. And I, th I think he, he really helped. So, you know, it did get depressing when I got, you know, loads and loads of comments. But without that, you know, it wouldn't have been the book it was. So, you know, the copy editing process is, is uh, yeah, made a big difference, although it's hard and very depressing, you know. I think for me, that was the naivety of the first time that I did this, I naively thought, uh, here you go, Nigel, this is what me, Keith and Andy have produced, you know? you know, it's left my inbox now. And then at that point, I thought, that's it, the job's done. I've never been through the process before. And, and I remember the first time uh, when I worked uh, on this kind of stuff. And yeah, I remember it coming back. And I remember thinking, I thought this bloody thing was over. And it's like it's like it's like you're going back to the very start. It yeah. is like you're I mean, emotionally, you're going right back to the start of the process. And I know what to expect, as do you, but it's yeah, it's uh but I'm like you, right? I'm I know I I, I decided fairly early on. I'm just going, to, I mean. I would probably say 90 to 95% of the copy editing suggestions, I just go accept, accept, yeah. accept. And, and I, I choose a small number of important battles where I think, no, we're not doing what they're saying in this instance. <laughs> but I kind of choose my battles quite carefully, I think, is how I do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting because. We've never talked about this together, no. but it's just really interesting to... I've, I've got a feeling that for the British Back Calls book, I don't remember having a copy editor. I, wow. I don't okay. think so. I, I think someone proofread it, okay. um, and, the, and, the, and somebody made comments, you know, you maybe this is a spelling mistake, the comma should go in here, but I don't think we had a, a copy editor who went through in such detail, you know, so thorough as yeah. Hugh did. And it, it, so, you know, that wasn't quite so... <laughs> Exhausting as this one, yeah, yeah, um, but exhausting in a good way, of course. Yeah, because yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of having to kind of put yourself in a different place and say, this person, and they probably don't know nothing about the subject matter at all. Although Hugh, I mean, he knows about natural history and stuff, but mm. he wouldn't regard himself as a bad person. Um, but but they're, they're working in order to make it better. They're not working to rip you apart you know their, their, their heart is in the right place as to what it is they're trying to do on your behalf and on yeah. the publisher's behalf yeah. yeah exactly I mean what I like to do is to try to explain things as simply as possible 
<clears throat> so to have someone that isn't involved in bats reading it, I mean, that was a great help because that you know they they can say, well, actually, I don't think that you know someone reading this is really going to understand what you're saying here. You know, maybe you well either you could reword it like this or what the hell do you mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. so it does make a big difference. <laughs> no, it sounds good. It sounds really good. Okay, look, we're, get, we're, we're getting we're getting towards the we're getting towards the end. Uh, I want to. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. Okay, but there's a couple. There's one thing that we haven't really touched upon that I want us to just talk about briefly. I think it's always really nice, uh, especially somebody like yourself. Okay, a lot of people will know the name John Ross. Uh, a small number of very fortunate people, by comparison will have seen you do presentations at conferences or workshops and stuff. But but this is, uh, an, but even against the context of that, you never really get to think that much more about the person than what you think you already know. So for example, you know, the books and stuff. But you must have downtime. You've got family. What other kind of stuff do you get up to in your life when you're not doing bats? That helps keep you uh well just kind of helps keep you balanced uh holidays hobbies anything like that um well what, what, what do you mean what else is there other than that now <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're trying to find out john what else is there other than that um, well you, you so you'd like to know for yourself um <laughs> obviously i mean it's either bats or it's family really um i spend a lot of lot I love spending time with my family and, and the kids and you know we do all sorts of things and you know I'm sure you know when you're youngest kids you're you're taking them to things like football and climbing and you know for many holidays this weekend that's that looks like a really nice holiday. Yeah. Um, you, you were there apparently. I took this picture off your Facebook page. <laughs> I, I think that is me in the middle with that, that hat. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's down near Bournemouth somewhere. Okay. Yeah, and obviously doing things like that. I um, I play music a lot in my in my spare time. You may be able to see. Okay. Oh wow! Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I'm going to stop this. Uh, oh wow. Okay. So that looks like a is that a Gibson on the left? No, that's a Fender. It's a, <clears throat> oh, it's a Fender. Yeah. Fender. A Strat. It's a I'm, Strat. I'm not particularly into makes. I think that's a. It's just an electric guitar. It's okay. A Fender and I, I don't even know what that. Acoustic is. I, I mainly play. play uh, I'll just reset this. I mainly play, play acoustic guitar. Okay. With some other stuff, and that um, that helps me unwind. Um, yeah. I mean, I I, I got I learned piano at a very, very early age, and then taught myself guitar. And um, yeah. it's one of my favourite things to do when I, I'm not doing bat stuff and not doing family stuff. I don't actually have an awful lot of time to do it. So I, I think for the past sort of 12 years since the since uh, Ellen, my eldest, was born, I've yeah. mainly been playing to stand still, as it were. Yeah. So just play enough to not fall behind. But yeah, I, I, I enjoy doing that. Um, what else? Go to the gym a bit. Okay. Um, I can't think of anything else. That sounds really, bo that sounds really boring. That's a, that's a couple of things. I, I never knew you were going to go down the guitar routes, but I mean, uh, I play, I play guitar. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no great shakes. When I was much, much younger, I used to play in local bands in Aberdeen, but that's going back what thirty odd years. 
but I still play. I still play my acoustic uh, every other day. What, what sort of stuff do you play? Um, or stuff like uh, oh, what, what my, things like Pink Floyd, The Wall on acoustic. It's not very my version. It's not a very good version. Uh, stuff like uh, rock. No rock. Rock type music. Um, so uh, you know. I'm kind of into bands like uh, Lincoln Park, uh, my younger days, bands like Deep Purple um, and, you know, heavy metal, all that kind of stuff, which doesn't necessarily translate well into next. I, I used to be a heavy metal person as well. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, amazing. I do I do play a, a mean version of um, Back in the Village by Iron Maiden on the acoustic. Wow, and I've seen Maiden five times. Actually, I don't play it that well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that would be difficult to do Iron Maiden. And, um, what's the other one? Uh, Phantom of the Opera. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. wow, wow. But I, I'm more, I, I've always been a huge fan of the Beatles, so I, I, I know loads of Beatles songs on, on okay. the acoustic guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know something? I've done a few of these interviews now, uh, and just off the top of my head, right, David King. Right. Have you ever heard him play acoustic guitar? I've never heard him play, but I know he does play. Oh, there is some YouTube video of him and and it's classical acoustic uh, stuff that he plays. Uh, as a guitar player, you've got to search him on YouTube straight after this and watch him playing an acoustic guitar. It is like, I don't know what level you're at, but this... I don't play guitar when I watch him playing guitar. I just think this guy is like, I know, a different level. Uh, I was doing the guys from Wildlife Acoustics a couple of months ago. Uh, and uh, and Paul and uh, Sherwood, both guitar players, didn't, didn't know that until I started doing the prep for the interview. And there was somebody else that, I can't remember, there's somebody else who interviewed recently and they brought out that, you know, they spent a lot of time playing guitar. Uh, yeah. It's quite, quite fascinating how many people come across. Because when we're at back conferences and stuff like that, talking to all of these people, you know, hmm. it's pretty boring, really. All I ever mean, talk should, about uh, is, yeah, we just talk we about bats. Bring, these, bring mm. these guitars to, to one of the conferences at some point. A mega jam. <laughs> <laughs> I remember years ago when one of the conferences that I went to, a couple of people would bring instruments. Um, okay. Oh, who was it? Um, does John Haddo? Does John Haddo not play guitar? I've oh, maybe got that. I don't know. I've maybe got oh, that if wrong. We, if we get uh, him to bring his, yeah, yeah. Uh, but and um, Hen uh, Hen uh, Henry Andrews. Yeah, he does, and I'm yeah, also thinking I, of, that's, um, that's I, he was the person I interviewed last month. He started oh, yeah. talking so, about so does Henry Schofield. Right, okay, right. Wow. Well, let's do this. <laughs> I mean, let's forget the conference. We'll just have a we'll just have a big back guitar jam. Yeah, a few beers or some <laughs> uh, some bottles of coffee. And uh, it sounds that's like a lot more fun, to be honest. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. I asked you that question. I didn't know where we're gonna go. I didn't know where we're gonna go there. Um that's fascinating, fascinating stuff. John, I'm going to take you to the end. Uh, that has been, wow, wow. Um, yeah, that's been amazing. Uh, there's so much more insight and background uh, to your life and your interests and what you do. And I don't know, for me personally, 
that has just been amazing. And I am pretty certain anybody watching this uh, is going to uh, find a huge amount of value and inspiration and many, many other things through just listening about some of your experiences and some of the stuff that, uh, that you've done. So uh, I just want to say thank you very much for your time today. Um, and I just want to ask you at the very end, uh, before we close things off, uh, how was this for you? Because I know sometimes you're a little bit apprehensive about doing stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, what was it like from your perspective? As you know, I, I hate doing things like this. Um, I hate giving talks, um, hate interviews. Um, but actually, I've, I've really enjoyed doing this. I, I mean, thanks very much for inviting me onto it. Um, you, you've made it very, very easy. It's very laid back. It was enjoyable talking to you. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much. Well, well, no problem at all. And the honour, quite honestly, is all mine. If I could take myself back to 1999, uh, seeing that first book, meeting that guy that produced that first book for the first time, uh, seeing you deliver that workshop that I witnessed at that point, I could never, I could never have imagined that 20 odd, goodness, decades later, uh, we'd be doing this and uh, I just want to say hugely appreciated and uh, just thank you thank you so much for, for doing this you're very welcome we hope you enjoyed this Talking Bat interview which is an edited audio only version of the original videoed session the full version including video is available via Betability Club our online training platform to find out more about Club go to betability.co.uk Till next time, thank you.